This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Why wouldn't King Kong want a Lady Gorilla edition? It's Wednesday, January 10th, 2018. On today's show, we continue our run-up to Oscar season with Guillermo del Toro's cinematic wonder, The Shape of Water. And then the Golden Globes are uh, they are often considered something like the Oscars irreverent and uh, possibly inebriated younger sibling. This year, however, they were pretty dead serious in their commitment to a Me Too and a post-Weinstein Hollywood. We will discuss both the awards and uh, the political halo surrounding them. And finally, sleep is so strange, it's so creaturely, and it seems peculiar that we can't disrupt our way out of this ancient thing. What is it and why do we do it? We discuss. Joining me today is Laura Miller, the wonderful book critic. Hello, Laura. Hi, Steve. Welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be back. Good. And uh, and of course, Dana Stevens, the wonderful film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Stephen. How are you? Good. All right, let's dig right in. The Shape of Water is a director's film. You could even say it's a director's director's film. It's so fully conceived, shot by shot, line by line. It's a Cold War thriller at the heart of which is the romance between a mute cleaning woman and a mysterious sea creature, part Black Lagoon, part E.T., part Amazonian God. Eliza works in a Cold War facility in which the creature, dredged, subdued, tortured, and returned to the United States from South America, is held captive where he's prodded and, quite frankly, tormented, going only by the name The Asset. But Eliza sees his personhood or his divinity or soul, up to you, I guess, and forms a relationship with him. And what follows is a fantasia, part cinematic dreamscape, part tightly plotted thriller, part, I don't know, romantic comedy isn't quite right, but there are some elements of that, too. It's all Guillermo del Toro. It's a very unique film. And by the way, we didn't have a traditional clip available, so we're just going to play you uh, something from the trailer. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language of understanding emotions. Dana, I will admit, I do not have fresh in my mind your history with Guillermo del Toro and your feelings about his work in general. I'd be very curious to hear those first and then what you thought of the movie. Hmm. Okay, well, quick rundown of those. I mean, I I think I don't have only one monolithic feeling about him, but I was passionately excited for this movie because he himself had said that he regarded it as, in a way, part of this spiritual trilogy, that it belonged with... Pan's Labyrinth, which I consider his greatest movie, and The Devil's Backbone, the prior movie to that, that also has this fairy tale horror quality, and that is a completely original story. Actually, I guess all of his movies so far, pretty much, except the Hellboy films have been original stories, but that he had named these three as kind of the three that came from the heart. And so I was super excited to to see The Shape of Water because of my love for Pan's Labyrinth. What I might consider the lesser Guillermo del Toro films that came between, including the Hellboy movies, which are great. And uh, Crimson Peak, this gothic, really intense gothic horror movie from a couple years ago. And what else has he done since then? Oh, the kaiju movie, Pacific Rim. All of those movies share in his kind of wild visual imagination and his love for creatures, which really this movie is essentially a valentine to the the monster movie, right? Um, but I would I would place this in the top three of his movies, along with The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. But I would also say, and now we're getting to my reaction to this movie, even though it is so completely imagined and so beautifully staged and it has great performances in it, there's something about this movie, and we can get into why maybe, that stayed a little bit hermetic for me that never quite came alive. I can't say that, although it entranced me while I was in the theater, I can't say that it stuck with me a lot since I came out of the theater. And I think some of its points are too hammered home. But that said, I think if you're interested in Guillermo del Toro and the imaginary worlds he creates and explores, you have to see this movie. Mm. Before we go any further, we should say it's a it's a beautifully performed film. I mean, I think all of the performances, Laura, 
I'm curious to know whether you agree are wonderful. So let me name some of them. There's Sally Hawkins in the lead. Uh, there's Michael Shannon as the film's bad guy. He's he's c- completely implacably kind of chillingly wicked Cold War anachronism. Richard Jenkins plays our one true companion in life. Uh, he's wonderful, very humane. Doug Jones uh, gives an Andy Circus quality performance uh, by bringing this very peculiar amphibian uh, bringing a kind of humanity or even divinity or whatever you want to call it, the soul of this creature, which is really at the heart of the film to life. It's a, it's a, uh, Octavia Spencer ought to be in every movie, uh, is one of the takeaways from the film. I just wanted to quickly say that because I hadn't included it in the intro, but Laura, I'm very curious. what do you make of this picture? Well, I'm a del Toro stan and, um, pretty much Crimson Peak is like if you were to just, decant all of my very idiosyncratic personal yens into a movie <laughs> when it come out as Crimson Peak. It's got a big old gothic house and it's got horror and it's it's just great. Um, but, and I recognize that it's not a great movie in the way that Pan's Labyrinth is, but it's just so completely suited to my personal taste that I it made me feel like Guillermo del Toro must be my best friend. And when I had read that he had an entire room in his house devoted to Gothic literature, then I just knew he was, you know, he should be my, he should be my best friend. So, um, so I don't have a lot of perspective on this, but I did love, I did love this movie. I loved everything about the way that it looked. I think the great strength of his, sort of horror monster, whatever you want to call it, his work in the genre, is that his special effects always feel organic instead of digital. And in particular, just the care that goes into making these fantastic images has a kind of, you know, flesh and guts quality to it that is really exceptional. Um, and, and in this case, in particular, the beauty of the creature's eyes are, is so powerful and goes so far in telling the story of the creature's soul that, that really at, in the beginning only Eliza can perceive. But I think that the whole movie really does hinge on Sally Hawkins' performance. She's, a, I think, a great actress. And it was really striking because if you had asked me, what is Sally Hawkins like on the basis of the other performances of hers that I've seen? I'd say, oh, she's kind of gawky, but lovable. And in this, she was so graceful, so physically graceful that it, she seemed like another woman to me. And, and so it's an extraordinary physical performance as well. It's a silent mm. performance, too, which yes. is something that's really, really noteworthy. And a couple of critics, I think it was Stephanie Zaharik compared her to Lillian Gish. Yeah. Uh, somebody else, A.O. Scott, compared her to Charlie Chaplin. I mean, she has that kind of fullness of, of physicality in the performance that you sort of forget that her character can't talk. It doesn't seem like a The way lack. she just moves her hand mm. is mm-hmm. so eloquent. And I think that in that the that the movie is all about perceiving the qualities that we think of as human in places where people have traditionally preferred to deny those qualities. And so, um, you know, it's so important that the central character have this profound humanity to her, which she really conveys without being able to speak. I mean, she's, she's just amazing. She's radiant Mm -hmm. in this movie. And um, there's a scene where the Michael Shannon character is sort of sexually harassing her or whatever he's saying, you know, you're not much to look at, but I, I can't stop thinking about you. In a way, you can completely understand that because she seems both plain and sort of ravishingly beautiful at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's exa- exactly it, plain and ravishingly beautiful. I mean, this is a movie, was to me a movie about people trying to fight through and beyond Cold War binaries. I mean, it's absolutely set in 1962, this creature has been taken for a weapon by the Americans uh, and and the Soviets. It turns out, um, and and you know the movie is all about these these very cold, harsh, and dehumanizing binaries that characterize that period in American history and how people, you know, humanity is just inexorable and it's going to fight 
over and against these. And it also struck me that this this movie is a monster movie. I think it announces itself in the opening voiceover as a kind of monster movie. And the monster is Michael Shannon, not the sea creature. Um, and I thought that was that was a tough part of the movie in a way because he, he is he is fantastic. His face is unbelievable. It's this you know rock hewn uh, impersonal mask of like kind of hatred and ideology, right? And and the problem with the movie that does that is always well, is this kind of is this the cartoon element, right? The, like the very cartoon element that you're trying to escape by making the creature so soulful, have you displaced it onto this Cold War villain? And I think they do some interesting things. I'd be curious to hear from both of you about this, where they show this man's family life. They show the professional pressures that he's under. They don't humanize him. I mean, he is absolutely through and through a monster. Um, So that was a question mark I had about the movie a little bit, right? You're trying so hard to break through these binaries to humanity, and yet you need to animate the plot and the thriller element of the movie with this monstrousness of this man, which is beautifully drawn. It's very convincingly done, and he is horrifying. Um, The other thing I would say is, after having made a plea to deconstruct binaries, I do think that there's a binary at the heart of this movie and how audiences take it, which is simply this, do you believe the romance or don't you? Uh, And if you don't, you're not going to go along with this you know, crazy cinematic fantasia. And if you do, I think you're going to find it quite moving. I, I would I would say that I was more in the yes camp than in the no camp. And in fact, I, at the end of the movie, I did find it essentially pretty effectively moving. I mean, all of which is to say, just boil it down, is that I ended up being surprisingly taken by the film in almost all of its aspects except one, Dana, which was I was shocked, and maybe this is a function of its gothic its membership in the gothic genre i was shocked by how violent the film was and in in part that's because they're trying to show how brutalized this creature has been at the hands of the movie's actual monster at, at michael shannon's hand but the movie itself just really pursues violence and ultraviolence in ways that i i found a little bit hard to stomach did, did you find that at all did you think it was necessary to the film or am i just barking up some wackadoodle tree here I mean, I think I see what you're saying. It's there's some there's some body horror elements in there, is how I named it in my yeah, review. There's a couple. Exactly. Gr- there's some out of left field, gross out moments, which in the context of this, you know, often gentle love story, for it to suddenly become sort of sadistic toward its characters and towards the audience is a, is a surprise. But as you say, it is also kind of packed in to the fact that this is a Cold War era set parable. I mean, I would go so far as to say, in relation to what you were saying earlier about the Michael Shannon villain character, that that's the weakest part of the movie for me. Not his performance. Nobody can be scary like Michael Shannon. But giving him only that to do, the family story, I didn't think added that much, knowing that he lived in a sickly pastel house with a obsequious <laughs> wife and you know generic blonde children. Maybe that's the part where Guillermo del Toro's non-Americanness shows itself because the pe- kind of parody or... I don't even know what it is exactly. The curdled vision of mid-century American life that he's showing feels over-familiar to me. I feel like the the core of that character is his interaction with the general, where mm-hmm. he appeals to the general for like a little leeway or a little faith. And the general is like, no, you either do this or you're just dead to us. And it's really and, it's a critique of masculinity that that whole relationship, right? It, it, it's he's. I feel like the character is very. Is, I think it's pretty clearly communicated that the character is driven by fear, and that everything that he does is a manifestation of one kind of fear or another. Yes, obviously, there's the fear of the other, the creature's alien, and 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 so that they, they don't understand it, and the fear of the 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 Soviets and all like the obvious sort of fear parable stuff. But I think the brilliant moment was that moment with the general where you realize that he is a brutal, heartless man because he's part of this brutal, heartless hierarchy. Right. And I think that reflects a, a foreigner's view of what the cold war was, right? Mm. Cause, cause we essentially drew the entire world into this drama that we were playing out with the Soviets and which being on a war footing, essentially, you know, for whatever it was, 40 years, you know, allowed a certain kind of bureaucratic sadism to rise to the top in American life. I mean, it was the very worst feature of our culture. And, you know, 
anyway, I thought that that I, I, I agree. I thought that the distillation of that and the figure of the general in that relationship was quite successful. I would I just want to remark on a kind of funny thing about this, which is that the whole tradition of monster movies has this trope of the monster falling in love with the human woman, which is always so ridiculous. Like, what would King Kong ever really see in Fay Ray? She's just like a little figurine to him, you know? Why wouldn't King Kong want a lady gorilla, you know? I mean, why would he at all fall in love with Fay Ray? It's just ridiculous. And the same thing with the creature of the Black Lagoon. He wants a lady creature. He doesn't want just some human woman. And so I, I always, this was a thing about monster movies that I always thought was just so risible, even as a child, you know, I was like, if you, you know, you want, you know, you're, you're a monster. You want another <laughs> monster. Laura, I, okay, wait a second. Aren't <laughs> you the fairy tale loving, fantasy author loving person who, yeah. who, who enjoys kind of strange erotic couplings and fiction and things like that? We've talked about fanfic and such things. Doesn't it seem like the most natural thing in the world that basically the viewer falls in love with the monster and we need a proxy. We need a beautiful woman proxy to be our monster lover on screen. For us. Um, I really like the switch in this where the woman falls in love with the monster instead of the monster falling in love with the woman. Cause I always felt like in most monster movies, it was the male filmmakers projecting their, you know, erotic fetishize, fetishization of the actress on their poor monster, which is never allowed to actually want its own kind. And so I liked the reversal. That's that's where I was going with this. And I thought it was witty in that way that that instead of the monster falling for the for the ridiculous girl in the white nightgown who just screams the whole time that it's that instead the girl is the hero and that she falls in love with the monster. I, I agree. With, I agree with liking the reversal, but I wish and this is sort of hard to talk about without spoiling things, but I wish we got to know the monster a little bit better. The The movie very glancingly lets the attentive viewer know that there might be more of a connection between Eliza and the creature than we then is readily apparent. And, you know, they're both from other countries. They're both from outside of America. And there is a line that, that Michael Shannon says at the end, right? Just at the very end of the movie um, that I think points in the direction of what the creature is in a way that I found satisfying because it didn't explain too much. I guess I didn't want a scientific explanation. I didn't want scientists in front of a whiteboard explaining <laughs> who the monster is. I wanted the monster himself to had to emerge as a as a creature with a particular yeah. history. Mm, uh, like can flashbacks I say- to his time at boarding school. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of Ta- glad that it was days. kept. <laughs> tadpole days. That's the prequel forthcoming. But I I think I think it was good to keep it. I thought I thought that line was drawn tactfully and and quite well. All right. Well, the movie is The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, check it out and come to Facebook. Tell us what you thought. I, at the end of the day, I ended up with a pretty enthusiastic thumbs up. Curious to know what listeners felt. All right, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure we have some business. Laura, what uh, what do we have? Yes. Okay, so first, join us on Tuesday, January 23rd, from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at the Filmmaker Lodge, live at the Sundance Film Festival, for an exclusive show presented by Dropbox. Now, this would not be us, including me. This is going to be the um, the classic Troika uh, doing the Gab Fest. They will be joined by Aisha Harris of Represent for a special joint show featuring onstage interviews with some of the festival's leading creators to discuss their work. Again, that's Tuesday, January 23rd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at the Filmmaker Lodge. Tickets are free, so go register now. And don't forget, there's also a live hit parade show on January 18th at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn. There are still some tickets left, so get them while they last at slate.com slash live. 
We also want to tell you about another show, The Gist with Mike Pesca. The Gist is a daily news and opinion podcast from Slate. Each day, host Mike Pesca sorts through the torrents of information in the news cycle, and he selects a few stories that cry out for a closer look because of an odd fact, an untested argument, or a thesis to explore. Think of the gist as a curated op-ed page with more jokes. Look for it every weekday evening, wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about the Metropolitan Museum of Art changing their long-time ticketing policy and demanding a mandatory admission fee for the first time in 50 years. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it's a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gap Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to it. The Golden Globes are the fun, diverting, uh, and finally eminently ignorable appetizer to the main course, which is, of course, the Oscars. But this year is something quite a little bit different. The Banquet and the Booze format has always lent itself to less pomp and more fun. And in its way, sincerity, or maybe what passes for sincerity in Hollywood, intimacy, whatever you call it, people watch. It's fun. But this year, that aspect of it, I think, in particular, lent itself beautifully to the Me Too moment as it intersects with our badly deformed national politics. People knew this was coming, going in, but I think the show in many ways delivered a note of seriousness that was not self-serious, that was timely and had real moral weight, especially, of course, from the women in attendance. Uh, so the quick rundown is it was hosted capably by Seth Meyers, I thought, who was a very good choice for this. Um, it, uh, the big awards uh, went to Greta Gerwig and to three billboards. We'll get to those. But somehow, Dana, I've got to say, really, the focus descends way more than anything else on women uh, in Hollywood, speaking up in a post-Weinstein moment, and particularly on Oprah, who is electrifying. There's a particular moment in her speech where her cadence gets very Obamian. That uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's where she says, their time is up. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared to speak their truth to the power of those men. But their time is up. The time is up. Well, Dana, I we don't want to put too much of our focus on Oprah, but it was it just so dominated Twitter and the coverage after I felt like we had kind of almost had to begin there. Um, but many people spoke up over the course of the night eloquently and pointedly. Uh, what do you make of the Golden Globes this year? Well, first of all, I just I have to say that that clip that we chose, I wanted to use that clip from from Oprah's speech because to me it was the moment when, you know, the whole show was sort of hijacked and in a good way and, and turned into this different thing, this platform for what felt at the moment. I mean, I, I think, you know, there was a 24-hour rush of is Oprah running and now it seems sort of clear that she's not really consider- considering running seriously, but it really did turn the event from a cultural platform to a political platform for that moment, right? She talked about tyranny. I mean, she used all kinds of words that are, that don't really belong in an award show context at all. Whatever is the result of that speech for Oprah's career trajectory was an absolutely gripping moment of, of rhetoric. Um, as for the awards in general, I mean, I have one I have one quibble, Steve, with what you said earlier. Why is Seth Meyers the perfect host if this is the year of the woman? I mean, I agree that he carried it off very capably, but the poor guy, was he literally had to apologize for being a man every time he stood at the podium. I kind of don't understand why, even if it had been set for a year, and I know it's hard to you know change these things in mid prep, wouldn't, why not just sub mm-hmm. in Amy Poehler or somebody, any any yeah. funny woman who'd be willing to do it? It seemed like an odd choice to me for him to be saying, oh, I know I'm part of the problem just in existing and standing here, but let's yep. turn all the attention to the women. Right. So okay. nothing no, against no, no, Seth Meyers, but. No, absolutely. I stand completely corrected. If you, they shouldn't have gone with a man and having gone with a man, I think he's the perfect choice, but that's a fuck up on their part and a fuck up on mine not to note it. And it may have been, yeah, it may really literally have been the case that they couldn't get anyone in the time frame in which they realized, oh, shit, we should really have a woman hosting this. But OK, so so all of that aside, yeah, there's so much to talk about in this award show. And this is not one I usually ever even watch or pay attention to because it's not really predictive of anything in award season. And it tends to be, 
it tends to be, you know, very random, the awards that are given by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And as you notice, we're not really talking about who won what on this night, which is what maybe mm-hmm. made it exciting. But even the fashion part of it, which, Laura, I hope we're, we're missing Julia Turner, who is always our great red carpet <laughs> oh, analyst. No. You're barking up but, the wrong tree all thinking I I'm going to talk about fashion. Oh, so neither of you are going to engage at all with the fact that everyone was wearing the same color in the room? I mean, that really um, changed the mood yeah, of the whole event. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, well, I don't. I have to admit, I don't usually watch award ceremonies for one primary reason, which is that I really hate sort of cringe viewing, like like seeing people being publicly embarrassed. And in my opinion, even this ceremony was an example of these actors who, as a general rule, often I really admire and whose work I like, being publicly embarrassed by the terrible, terrible patter that they're made to read, <laughs> introducing <laughs> this or that. Like I, like I finally, I, I missed the the monologue at the beginning, and then I saw that and I thought this is good, and 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 I was happy that Seth. Meyer got to actually tell some funny jokes and not sound like an idiot. But, you know, like they made Roseanne Barr come on stage and talk about being causing drama. You know, they're just these terrible jokes. And the actors just look like they're being tortured when they have to read them. And I just can't watch Mm -hmm. it. You know, that's why I don't usually watch them. So I don't have a lot to compare it to. But this whole thing did remind me of the um, 1993 Oscar ceremony, which probably hardly anyone remembers, but Liza Minnelli came out to do this number called Ladies Day. And I think the the theme of the show was the rise of women of that particular Oscars uh, ceremony. And I think maybe four women had been elected to the Senate and it was like unprecedented. And then the year before that, there had been Thelma and Louise, which was like a, a huge feminist moment for Hollywood and um and also was incredibly threatening to the to the masculine establishment. And then to sort of honor this, they had Liza Millie come on and do this horrible number called Ladies Day with all these sort of Bob Fosse sort of dancers and it was just just awful. At last where once the option takers, women's place was by the coffee makers. Now those days, now those days have passed. Like, this was definitely better, but I feel like often these people are not necessarily the best spokespeople for the, um, the ideas that they're sort of made to carry. It definitely is more powerful that they are speaking about their own direct experience of uh, of harassment and discrimination, which is clearly really rampant in in Hollywood, and and we all knew that even before the Weinstein scandal. And when Barbara Streisand came on and said that she was the first woman to win the director award in over thirty years, that was really, you know, that was you know a, a really telling moment. Um, And of course, when Natalie Portman said, and here's the all-male list of best director nominees. Although, can I step in and say that moment of snark was, I appreciated that moment of snark in Natalie Portman's introduction, but to paint Greta Gerwig as like a lost orphan in these awards, in this whole awards season, is just wrong. Her movie is getting wildly recognized by all kinds of groups, and it won Best Picture on this very night and Best Actress. She's won Best Director for many awards groups. So even though, you know, that was like a well-placed barb, I don't think that it was in this in that particular case, illuminating a real lack in this award season. Yeah, I guess I don't really see these celebrities as a as the vehicle through which I want my feminist values to be voiced. So when Oprah got up and made her speech, it was just all the more powerful, right? Because she felt really like she she knew what she was talking about and. I believe that she wrote that speech herself and it like came from the heart. I don't necessarily want Oprah to want to run for president, but I do feel like without that speech, it would have been still, I felt thin gruel, even though the issue is so much more immediate for all of those, those people, because it was about their own industry. They, it's just really hard for them to seem like they're really 
on top of the issues. I, I just they seem like out of touch celebrities to me. Well, I mean, I think I was impressed to the degree to which that was not true, at least with most of the women that spoke. I mean, granted, Oprah's oratory took it to the next level. As I was saying, it sort of was a springboard out of the entertainment world into like a conversation about the actual world. But uh, but Laura Dern, Frances McDormand, I mean, even Natalie Portman's bar. Yeah, I can't McDormand, come up with all the examples Frances now. But. Mc, Frances McDormand to me is a, like a New York actor, not, not a Hollywood person. And even just the way that she was dressed, and she wasn't wearing black, was she? Was she was in Navy, yeah. Yeah. I, you in, know, this, in this sort of nun-like Navy yeah. gown. Yeah, there were some, okay. With can, her very I, cropped hair. And then, like, and I love her so much. And I love that she won. I know people have problems with that movie, but she's incredible in it. And I'm happy yeah. she got that award. Yeah, And I love that she didn't smile so much. I mean, it, it's so powerful <laughs> she, that she... The pictures of her in the audience are always so poker-faced. Yeah. It's great. And when she, got, when she won, she got up. She was not beaming and smiling. And she was so... Uh, she, you know, these award ceremonies, there's so much about presenting, like, an image of a certain kind of way of being. And so it's very difficult to sort of go, oh, here's the feminist statement, uh, you know, you not to treat me like a sex, sex object. So I'm just going to wear this totally transparent black lace outfit. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to judge someone for, for wearing a transparent black lace outfit, but it's, it's confusing because part of what the, of the whole job of their industry is to sell this sort of you know, kind of commodified version of womanhood. And she so completely doesn't subscribe to that to the point that when she wins the big prize, she doesn't even smile when she mm-hmm. when she hears the news and she stands up and she goes on stage. Yeah, Frances McDormand is just a, a, a She's monument. A She's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so that brings me to close. And I feel like since you guys aren't going to do it, we don't have Julia who has so much more sartorial insight than mm-hmm. I do. But I want to just make a small observation about, you know, what you were saying about the transparent black lace versus the nun-like blue, dark blue gown of Frances McDormand. It just because the palette was so limited by the fact that there was essentially a directive. I mean, it was it was a choice to wear black or not to these awards, but essentially everyone that you saw on camera did, right? Mm-hmm. And so by restricting to that extent, you really force people to make very precise sartorial statements with their clothes, women in particular. And as I made this point in a little post about the awards that I wrote for Movie Club as kind of the, the wrap-up to Movie Club on Monday. But because of the the differential in the way women are expected to pre- present themselves in Hollywood and out, right, the, mm-hmm. the sort of proper presentation of a put-together, well-groomed, attractive woman compared to the same for a man, right, the man is already so limited in his palette that the women have to make these decisions like, you know, um, do I wear the the black velvet or the dark blue or the lace or how revealing am I and what's the jewelry and what are the shoes and what's it all saying about my sexuality and Mm. about gender and our moment in politics. And all the men have to do is wear the same black tuxedo they always wear, (laughs) maybe with a black shirt instead of a white shirt, right? And a little button that says time's up. And so I just felt that symbolically that double standard was inscribed in the very in the very dress code of the evening. And so I was really fascinated to see how each woman worked that for herself. And uh, and I respected the ones who wore, you know, crazy, slinky, transparent outfits. I, I feel like the question of individual choice of presentation of one's appearance, including one's sexuality, was something that a lot of, of, of women, probably in conjunction with their stylists, were working on in a kind of intelligent way. And, you know, in a dynamic that's become familiar in this whole conversation, all the men did was slap on a button and say nothing when they got to the mic. (laughs) I mean, as many a feminist blog has observed, so I won't go over it again. But, yeah, there was essentially no man accepting an award who made any mention at all of, you know, the the phenomenon that was ruling the entire night in his speech. I don't know how much of that is people not caring or not thinking about it as much as being afraid of saying the wrong thing. I don't know that I would in their position, I would feel like I would want to say anything because it's just so easy to get it wrong. Did that did that strike you as unusual, Steve? Did you want the men to, to speak out more? Oof. I mean, that that is a tough needle to thread. I know a lot of women quite rightly have said, don't, don't mansplain it, don't appropriate it, don't move the spotlight back to you. I think the duty of men to this moment is, doesn't include any kind of grandstanding or speechifying, quite the opposite. Um, I think the ways in which Oprah talked about what men can do 
going forward was very, very powerful. Um, well, she said they can they, listen, but it wouldn't it have been possible for one man to say, oh, and I just want to say thank you to all the women who have spoken yeah, out. Or I just, I'm yeah. listening. Just say Guillermo I'm listening. did. Did he? <laughs> yes. Oh, your true love, Guillermo. <laughs> your boyfriend. My boyfriend. Your monster man. <laughs> My monster man. I love him so much. What did he say? He just said he wanted to thank all the amazing women in his life. All right. Well, I, I'm curious to hear from our listeners whether they take this or even the Oscars seriously at all. And if they do, what what, what they make of Three Billboards winning and Greta Gerwig's, Gerwig's Big Night and on and on and on. But mostly, what do you think of Oprah? What do you think of the speeches and uh, and the Me Too moment in Hollywood? Go to Facebook.com slash Culture Fest and join the convo. Okay, moving on. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. In a way, it's startling how universal sleep is in the midst of the hurried scramble for survival across eons of bloodshed, death, and flight. Unaccountable millions of living things, billions really, have laid themselves down for a nice long bout of unconsciousness, so writes Veronique Greenwood in the January 3rd edition of the Atlantic Monthly. Why do we need sleep is her article. Uh, which leads me to ask, why did we decide to do this topic? But I mean, I, it is, Laura, to me, a completely gripping one because there's Ms. Greenwood's article to which we also added in our research packet, a uh, similar piece from Wired, another piece from The Atlantic, something from the BBC, all of which are framed exactly the same way, essentially. Here's this totally creaturely, seemingly kind of atavistic thing or ancient and, and anachronistic thing that we all do and we share with the animal kingdom and we still don't know why we can explain almost everything or at least explain it away but we come up against this mystery involving something we do with fully a third of our time what what do you make of this well, I've always been interested in this. I mean, everyone's interested in the subject of sleep as far as I can tell. But um, I come from a family of big sleepwalkers, and uh, I have been a sleepwalker myself. I, I don't think I really do it anymore. But when I was trying to write about this, uh, it, you know, a couple of decades ago, I kept coming up against these walls of what people didn't know. And I would call up a sleep clinic and I would say, one of the things that I found really confusing was that, um, was the idea that you, sleepwalkers can't be dreaming because you dream in REM sleep. And when you're in REM, your body is effectively paralyzed, you know, which is one of the reasons when, when people start to wake up and come out of REM, but they're, and so they're a little bit more aware, but they feel like they, they can't move. And there's this, this terror of, of being unable to move. That's the transition from REM to a lighter level of sleep. But, you know, if you're not dreaming when you're sleepwalking, then what are you doing? Because if you wake up a sleepwalker, they, they think, oh yeah, I thought I needed to do this or to do that. Or, um, you know, when I was a child, it's far more, children are far more active as sleepwalkers and talkers than adults are. It was not unusual for one of my siblings to come into my bedroom at night and talk in sort of incomprehensible sentences or make reference to things that made no sense uh, because they were sleepwalking and sleep talking. Um, so I was like, well, if they're not dreaming, what what is it that they're doing? And it, it astonished me that these scientists at the Stanford Sleep Research Center, who I was phoning up for this piece I was trying to write, couldn't really answer that question. So mm-hmm. um, because most of the science of sleep has been directed at sleep disorders, um, sleep walking is a sort of minor sleep disorder because people have committed crimes while they were sleepwalking or done dangerous 
things while they were sleepwalking. And and so there's the idea that that needs to stop or you have to figure out what their criminal liability is. But um, but for the most part, it's not that common and, and it's not a big problem like insomnia or snoring or sleep apnea or, um, you know, any number of other really pressing sleep disorders that mess up people's lives. And so most of the science is really, really focused on fixing broken sleep. Because when people can't sleep, or they have any kind of difficulty sleeping, it's a crisis for that person. And, um, and that urgency that they feel really drives the research. But it sounds like there is now finally being more sort of general knowledge research into what sleep is and how it works. And it's just kind of amazing that it's taken so long. Yeah, I love how the article begins, the Atlantic article that, that we that was sort of the peg for this, this segment begins with uh, the, the portrait of this lab in Japan where, where sleep is studied. And if you read the first paragraph, you almost start falling asleep, <laughs> imagining the, the peaceful environs because they're not researching um, pathological sleep, right? They're just trying to figure out why it happens in the first place. And probably the most amazing thing to emerge from all of this this research we did is the the lack of consensus about what sleep is or why we yes. do it. Well, you know, another thing that I was really struck by with this is the idea that one of the things that happens in the brain during sleep is the sorting out of memories and discarding of the so the ones like like your your brain has this box, shoebox full of photographs that it took during the day and it's going through them one by one and throwing some away and deciding which ones to keep mm. and which ones to toss. Uh, and um the, it reminds me so much of the advice that a really great feature journalist gave me, which is that if you go out and you spend like a day with a source, someone maybe you're doing a profile of, and you have recorded interviews, but then you also have like the various things that you did, and they said that you've maybe taken notes on, um, you know, scribbled a word here or there, um, always write out your notes before you sleep. Never do it the next day. No matter how late it is when you get in, if you sleep on your notes, you will remember less from that day mm. than if you didn't. Yeah, but the thesis is you'll remember the good stuff or the important stuff. I mean, uh, you know, what I find interesting about this is that it, this may be one of the rare remaining subjects where the poets and the philosophers know as much or more than the scientists. And I was trying to think about, well, why is that? I mean, this is such a... This is not a minor thing that the body does. You could argue it's it's among the two or three most prominent and major and central things that a human body does, and we understand almost nothing about it. And I think one of the reasons is simply this, is, you know, if, if, if you are, like me, obsessed with the subject about the relationship between the mind and the brain and our, our human mentality and the physiological substrate that gives rise to it, what people say both in philosophy and in science, uh, quite frankly, is that we have less than no idea how mentality arises from the physiology of the brain. That, um, in fact, that remains a scientific mystery. And so it's something that has to be dealt with, at least as of now, philosophically, or notionally, or speculatively. And so it stands to reason that, well, how are you going to study sleep? Because, first of all, the subject is behaviorally remote to you. They're asleep, they're unconscious by definition, right? So all you can do is look at their brain, but you don't even have a successful working theory about the relationship between the physio physiology of the brain and what they say and do when they're awake. So you're dealing with a mystery that's embedded inside another mystery, which to me has a kind of, I'll fall back on a kind of sentimental poetic justice to it because we are in fact at the frontier between rationality and irrationality. I mean, the one thing we absolutely know behaviorally about sleep as we, as we reconstruct it by necessity during our waking life is that the semi-conscious or unconscious activity is by definition completely irrational. I mean, we have chrono chronologically jumbled, you know, seemingly symbolically supersaturated, but massively incoherent uh, non-narratives called dreams while we sleep. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that one is at this frontier that maybe we might celebrate, or am I just being a 
kind of, you know, uh, 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 pre-scientific goofus by saying this, but maybe we can celebrate the fact that this is somehow impenetrable. Yeah. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little <laughs> life is rounded with a sleep. That's all I could think when you were talking about poets and philosophers getting it, you know? Yeah. I mean, but a couple of scientific facts from from this roundup of research struck me in a very poetic way and actually helped me get to sleep last night, made me decide my own sleep problem is just that I can't turn my brain off. I just it's not exactly insomnia. It's just wanting to do one more thing, one more thing and making unwise bedtime choices. <laughs> and uh, and one way I didn't do that last night is that in the midst of reading all this sleep research, OK, I love these two details. I loved that jellyfish sleep and that mm-hmm. scientists didn't know that before. Basically, they're sort of trying to go as far back as possible in the historic genome, right? I don't know if that's probably the wrong word for it, but to go back as far as possible in terms of like the DNA of ancient creatures and see who sleeps and who doesn't. And jellyfish also have moments of rest, even though they don't properly speaking have brains. They sort of have a very rudimentary nervous system. So the idea that, you know, we share this thing in common with just blobs of gelatinous goo (laughs) floating in the ocean is a pretty good sign that you need to take it seriously and that watching that one more Netflix episode is a bad idea. The jellyfish (laughs) would not do it. The jellyfish would rest. What would the jellyfish do? Right. (laughs) (laughs) WWJD. <laughs> that yeah. was one, and then another was this beautiful image that one of these scientists uh, has does have a theory that a lot of some scientists, not all, subscribe to that your brain is kind of cleansing itself while you're sleeping, not just metaphorically cleansing itself, which I think they all agree on, but that actually spinal fluid courses through your mm. brain and it's been measured in mice and that your your brain cells shrink to allow room for it to it's like literally brainwashing right <laughs> but with the opposite like you wake up more it's like free. a dishwasher where there's just this, this this the cycle the, yeah the detergent or whatever is surges through and, then and that idea to me was really again. restful the idea like oh all i have to do is lie down and close my eyes and and i'll go through a, a brain cleaning cycle <laughs> So so those are scientific tissue, you know, images about like material tissue and what's happening into it when you sleep that to me struck me as both poetic and kind of uh, sleep encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of just reckoning with the fact that we're finally psychological. I mean, A, there's just the we are utterly creaturely and we are on a continuum with jellyfish. I find quite moving. On top of which, I would also say that as human beings, Laura, we are psychological creatures all the way down to the core. I mean, there is no, there is no finally escaping the fact of our own psychology by trying to displace it onto our physiology. And therefore, you know, one philosopher's explanation for sleep is simply that if we didn't do it, we would go mad. That that the that the sheer surplus of of consciousness and awareness would drive us crazy, and we just need for eight hours or six or whatever it is, we just need to shut that off as a restorative, regardless of the physiological substrate, you know, underneath. That 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 we just literally need consciousness to go away. Uh, and refresh it on a daily basis, or we would be stark, raving, crazy um, uh, lunatics. Which people, I mean, as has been proven in all kinds of, not experiments, yeah, but you know, sure. horrific human situations, people do go crazy and, and die pretty soon with when they're deprived of sleep. I mean, another scientific observation that a lot of these researchers make and are not able to find a consensual answer for is what's the evolutionary advantage? You know, why is it that every single species, not just the mammal, but essentially every single species leaves itself open to makes itself unconscious prey for a third of its life? Right. I mean, there has to be a very big Mm. reward for the for the organism to take that kind of risk. And that's a fascinating question, too. It seems to be a function of some kind of agency. I mean, do we know can a plant sleep? Maybe there's some form of sleeping that plants do, but plants aren't really conscious. And we would think maybe jellyfish aren't really conscious either. But there's some dividing line there between the two forms of life that seem mm-hmm. that sleep seems really essentially a part of if if even just some yeah. invertebrate. I wonder, though, I wonder if we had a botanist in here, though, if they would even break down that line and say that plants also have yeah. cycles. I mean, they certainly have sort of winter right. hibernation yeah. cycles. They have dormant. and But there's something, cells. I think, Laura, I, you know, there is something about returning on a daily basis to a vegetative state, right? It's as if evolutionarily what we did is we made this leap from vegetable alive but essentially vegetable to alive but somehow with agency <laughs> and consciousness and that that leap is so fucking radical it's so cosmically radical i mean 
that that happened anywhere at any point in the in the history of the universe that it happened is so remarkable and so total and so shocking that we just have to return to the vegetative state um, in order to sustain it. I find that a totally credible theory, but what do I count for? Nothing. But let's go around the table and just very briefly sleep hygiene, what it means to us and how disrupted is it because of artificial light or artificial um, uh, presidents. Um, Dana, what's the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I think I say this to my family practically every night, much less every year, but I, I'm turning over somewhat of a new leaf in the sleep department. I, I once gave some horrible advice on our call-in show to some new parents who were saying, how do you sustain a cultural life when you have a, a, a baby? Basically, how do I continue to read or watch movies or do anything I care about? And I think I told that poor person to just stay up late and lose sleep because you have to have a life. <laughs> And uh, and that's kind of my big struggle every night is that, you know, once the kid gets in bed, there's very little time until I have to get in bed in order to really have good sleep hygiene. And I just want to cram too many books and movies and conversations and experiences into those few hours. So my goal in sleep hygiene is essentially to admit defeat earlier in the day, just to say the day mm -hmm. has won and uh, I'm going back to my vegetative state. And uh, I know what hour I need to do that by. The question is just organizing my life so I can actually lie down at that hour. Mm. I have never had I, I have never had very much trouble falling asleep. Every once in a while I get insomnia and because I basically you know work from home, I can sleep a little later, stay up a little later. I mean, I might just get up and work if I if I happen to be awake late at night. Um so it's not a really fraught um subject for me. But the few times or the occasional times when I feel like I would really, you know, I have a, a plane in the morning or I want to get up really early and write and, you know, I'm not feeling sleepy right now. Um, one of the things I found really useful is, uh, and not obviously everyone can do this, is I just find an, some kind of audio book and I play it with a timer for 15 or 20 minutes. And there's something about having somebody read to you that really taps into sort of, you know, that childhood experience of being mm -hmm. read to sleep. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, you know, the disadvantage of this is you will never get anywhere in this audio book. You will never, you know, really have read it or, or, uh, so it kind of would help if it was something you had already read. I mean, sometimes I feel bad because I'm like, oh, my God, Treasure Island. I've never actually read it. And I often used the audiobook to fall asleep to. And so I've still never read it, even though I've like I know the first like two or three paragraphs really well. But um, but I but I recommend that as being a really effective way of bringing yourself down. I know people are really down on devices, but I think it's the light from the device. And yeah, there's something very cozy about just that voice coming to you in the dark and you don't have to worry, like you fall asleep and then it turns itself off. So you don't have to worry that it's just going on all night. And I, you know, that's my big tip to people who have trouble falling asleep. There are also podcasts that are specifically designed to be boring. And I wrote <laughs> like, like this one. <laughs> I, know, I wrote I wrote a, a post for uh, a pop up blog that Slate did on sleep last year about them if people want to search for them. I mean, my problem is staying asleep or falling asleep. It's just literally getting into bed and lying down. Yeah. Steve, what about you? Well, for me, it's the formula is really simple. I like a, a cold room and a really heavy blanket and so heavy that a friend of mine suggested maybe putting tires on top of it. But uh, it, it, that that to me is like kind of just airflow and um, and cool air and verging on cold, verging on frigid air, a really heavy blanket and my arm around Queequeg and I'm out like a <laughs> baby. All right. Well, the article we were pegging to is Why Do We Need to Sleep in the Atlantic? It's a terrific article by Veronique Greenwood. Uh, there are many ancillary articles uh, we'll uh, link to on our Facebook page. This one seems ripe for social media interaction. So go to Facebook.com. Tell us how you sleep, why you sleep, why you think you sleep. Uh, is this a question for poets, uh, philosophers, or uh, scientists? Or jellyfish. And on and on. We'd love <laughs> to hear from you. Okay. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dane. Ah, what do you have? I'm so glad I was here for one of those. <laughs> <laughs> that was the lowest rumbling in in many a, many a show. 
Um, all right. So since we just talked about sleep, I'm going to endorse a documentary that happened to air on PBS last night. A perfect timing as we were reading and talking about sleep. I only got to watch part of it because I was so busy reading about sleep, but I'm going to watch the rest of it. It's fully available online now, and it's called Unrest. It's a documentary by a young woman named Jennifer Bray, who, as when she was a young person, a graduate student at Harvard, suddenly developed horrible sleep patterns and symptoms of a mysterious illness that was eventually diagnosed as, and let me read this so I get it right, myalgic encephalomyelitis, commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And essentially, she investigates you know, sleep research, sleep science, and what it is like intimately to live as a person in the world with this disorder. It's really, really unsettling, at least the parts that I've seen so far. But it's also just really sharp and uh, and a very intimate portrait of something that seems very hard to talk about and, and awful to live through. But uh, And I'm realizing now that this documentary was recommended to me months ago by a friend of mine who has some symptoms of this chronic fatigue and, and has really suffered with it and got a lot out of this movie. So if you're somebody who either has that syndrome, knows someone with that syndrome, or just wants to understand that syndrome and sleep better, it's uh, it's called Unrest. The filmmaker is Jennifer Bray, and you can watch the whole thing on pbs.org. Mm. Uh, amazing. Uh, Laura, what do you have? Well, I have been trying to find good writing about playing video games because Slate's intrepid features editor, Laura Bennett, has been trying to get me to write about uh, the role of playing video games in my life as a as a an escape and as an addiction at times, especially when uh, you've had a really bad year like this past year was for all of us. Um, and one of the best I found is called Game Life by Michael Clune. It's a memoir mostly take goes up through his 13th year. And while he m- tries to make some cases for the power of games that I don't know always land that effectively, it is an, an amazing description of why they are so involving and also their strange relationship to real life, which is the subject that really interests me. And it's incredibly well-written. Game Life by Michael Clune. Ah, that's very cool. So, um, so Laura, while we have, have you here, I have to ask you something. Have you uh, ever read Anne and Wright? I have not. Oh, Laura, you are, you are in for something so, so special. She's just an extraordinary writer. I'm going to plug her one more time on the show. Um, uh, the Green Road is as good as The Gathering and Forgotten Waltz, which I've also uh, endorsed. Steve, do you have a recommendation of order? What would be your first text you would introduce people to Anne Enright with? Oh, probably. I mean, The Gathering, she won the Booker for. Uh, and um, I, 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 you know, it was literally sold out in Australia when we were there. She has a a a comp- a comparatively huger reputation in Australia than in the United States, which is undeserved. She's just amazing, but um, and deserves to be universally known. I, I think she really is that good a writer. But when she goes to Australia, which she did right when we were there, her books just get hoovered off the shelves. And I couldn't f- find her most famous one, The Gathering, which won the Booker. So I started with The Forgotten Waltz, which I wouldn't want to in any way talk it down. It was just such an extraordinary piece of writing, but it's in some ways a quite conventional retelling of an extramarital affair. But, but I loved it. So I, I wouldn't start there, but um, maybe The Gathering um, and then The Green Road and then The Forgotten Waltz. I mean, those the, any order. I mean, w- what's going to capture you infallibly, almost especially in The Forgotten Waltz, is the quality of her mind as it's reflected in the power of her prose, right? She's she's a remarkably forceful thinker, and she's always thinking things through without being at all an intellectual, which is what struck me when I sat on a panel with her um, in the Sydney Writers Festival. And and it just, I just knew when I, I knew when she opened her mouth, this was a, a peerlessly formidable human being. And I knew when I got off the panel that I had to read every word she had written. She's got an extraordinary piece in London Review of Books, I think, about the difference between men's literary reputation and women's that begins with this hysterically funny, but absolutely on point comparison between what would happen if a male author wrote the sentence, the cat sat on the mat. Uh, and if a woman wrote it and like all of the Hemingway-esque 
precision, spareness, and and implied depth when a man writes it, and the utter banality, triteness, you know, obviousness, um, and 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 you know, uh, you know, mentally addled simplicity of it when a woman writes it. But she does it beautifully and very funnily. Anyway, this is sort of a you know whatever. This is to say, grab whatever you can by her because she's just that good. Anything she's touched it so that I've encountered is just wonderful. I've only read also, her nonfiction, her essays and reviews and things like that. And I'm always excited when her name pops up as a, as a nonfiction writer. So I'm super excited to try her fiction. Excellent. And then very quickly, the twee Swedish pop band, Hello Safe Ride, <laughs> is on my... Uh, it ain't a Steve I, endorsement without it's a Swedish gotta go pop Steve. band. <laughs> it's got to go full Steve. So anyway, there you go. Um, uh, Laura, thank you so much for filling in, man. Always just an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It was fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a good one. Dana, as always, a total pledge. Thanks. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. For Laura Miller and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. There's something about him Like he has never seen the world Something so pure and decent